Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that in this time that we have together this morning, that you will open our hearts, that we will hear Jesus not just as our Savior, not just as the crucified one, but as our teacher. I would even go so far as to use the word preacher as he delivers his message today. I know that I am not worthy in and of myself to deliver anything on your behalf. But I'm so thankful that you have chosen to use broken vessels to declare the incomparable riches of the gospel to your people and then out through us to a lost world. So open our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. About a month ago, we started doing this this flyover, and um, believe me, I understand when we are in the Gospels more than any other time that this really is a flyover. We obviously cannot expose every single verse of the first 13 or 14 chapters of Matthew in only three months. But we talked about the fact that Matthew, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, had taken the, the notes of the gospel, the musical notes as it were, and has created his own song. And that song basically is all authority over all nations, which demands all allegiance. All authority, all nations, all allegiance. And he is showing us this in every way that he possibly can. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago that he has these different ways of showing us that Jesus truly is the one that has all authority. And the first one was fulfillment, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Matter of fact, we're going to see the word fulfill used in this passage in just a minute and uh, see how that continues to be part of his theme. But the second leg of this, the second pillar of this uh, teaching on authority are Jesus' teachings himself. Matthew has more of Jesus' teachings than any of the other gospel writers. There are actually five different uh, sermons, teachings, I guess they're officially called discourses, that Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. And the one that's the most famous, the one that is the longest of the five, is the one that we are jumping into today. This morning in Bible study, you looked at the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5, what we typically call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, the pure in heart, and etc. And uh, we talked about some of the things that Jesus turns on its head the way we look at the world, the way we look at being blessed, and the way that he looks at being blessed. But you see, in that teaching, there is this idea of authority. And so what we find in this teaching, the reason I think that Jesus lays this out for us can be summed up in four words. Four words that we hear nine times right here just in chapter 5. And those four words are, I say to you. I say to you to you. And so in this whole Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, which we're going to spend most of this month looking at, both in Bible study and in our teaching times in the worship services, is this two-pronged statement, I say to you. You see, the I say part is the authority part, okay? Jesus begins, before we get to the text we're going to look at this morning, let me just show you how he leads into this. In verse 17, he says, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, here's that word, but to fulfill. 
So in verse 17, he starts talking about fulfilling the law. Now, i got to tell you, it's one thing for a rabbi to say, I have a new way of understanding what the Bible says. I have a new way of explaining what it means. But for somebody to say, I am the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament says. I came to fulfill. That doesn't just mean to obey everything. It means literally to fulfill all of the promises that have been made in the Old Testament. Now that is quite a statement. As one commentator on read said, if you say that you have even an infallible way of understanding the Scripture, that might cause the, rabbi, the other rabbis and the priests to scratch their heads. But if you say, I am the fulfillment of the law, that'll get you crucified. That's the kind of thing that is blasphemy. And so Jesus dares to say, I am the fulfillment of of the law. And then he goes on in that same paragraph when you get to verse 20 and he tells us, I t- and this is the first time we see this phrase, I tell you, or literally in the Greek, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I say, which means he is taking on the authority to speak as God to you, to us. Now, what does Jesus have to say to us? What does he have to tell us? Well, if if he is not really the authority, then we can take him along with all other authorities and mix it in, and we uh, talk to the bartender down at the bar, we talk to the guru on the TV show or the website, and we read our Bibles, and we mix it all together and figure out how we want to live our lives. But if Jesus really is the authority, if he is the one and only then he demands a response from us. And I think that's what this teaching, this whole Sermon on the Mount is all about, is Jesus saying, I want you to understand, I have authority, and that authority implies and demands your allegiance. There's an ethical dimension to what Jesus says. I say to you. So what is he saying to us? Well, we see right there in verse 20, one of the things he wants us to understand in all of these Um, examples he's going to give us in the rest of chapter 5 is that we have to understand what it means to truly be righteous. Because the most righteous people in Jesus' day were the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the students of the law. They were the ones that understood the law. They copied the law. They wrote it down word by word, letter by letter, over and over and over and over again. And they had become the experts. And the Pharisees were the ones who had lived lives of absolute separatism from the things of the world so that they could be honored to God. Who could be more righteous than a Pharisee? Who could be more righteous than a teacher of the law? And Jesus said, you don't understand. It's not about what you do. It's about the attitude of your heart. And I want to show you the unrighteousness of these righteous Pharisees and scribes so that you can understand what my righteousness looks like. You see, there were several things that they had done. First of all, they had gotten more involved with the letter of the law than they had with the spirit of the law. Oh, they knew exactly where the line was. They knew exactly what was to be supposed to be done. And they would, sometimes they would add on piles and piles and piles of additional things. Sometimes they would find loopholes and ways to get around it. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes with the example, the case study that we're going to look at this morning. But they were experts at knowing the letter and how to obey the letter without really having the heart for it. They did it out of a sense of duty out of a sense of obligation. They also had this tendency to deal with all the little minutiae in the law. 
How many steps could you take on a Sabbath day? How much would something need to weigh in order to be a tithe? But they missed the big, more important things. Jesus says in another place that they've overlooked the weightier things. But it takes both. It takes both an attention to detail, but also an understanding of what the big overarching truths are. There was a professor or theologian from England named Dick Lucas who was famous for making a statement in one of his books. He said, we have to be careful to hold to the line of Scripture. Now what he meant by that was, if the Scripture is a straight line, what we have to do is be careful that we don't go beneath that line. In other words, do less than what the Bible says. That's what liberalism does. It finds excuses to cut corners and find ways not to do what God's Word says. But neither do we want to go above the line. That's where we add more things on than what the Bible says, and that leads to legalism. So if we get above the line, we become legalists. If we get below the line, we become liberal. So what we have to do is we have to keep ourselves on the line. And so one of the things that Jesus wanted to do in this teaching was to help us see that what the Pharisees and the scribes of the law called righteousness really was unrighteousness because they had at times added on to the law and gotten legalistic and at times they had gone beneath the law in order to excuse their own sinful behavior, their own sinful actions. The second thing that he wanted us to do in our allegiance to him, the reason he said I say this to you was not just to expose the unrighteousness of those who call themselves righteous but also to exhort us to recognizing the fact that the holiness, the actual weight of God's expectations on us should drive us to humility before a great and mighty God. You see, if I can find ways to cut corners and, and kind of say, Whew, okay, I guess I, I guess I got that one right, I guess I'm okay with that, I begin to honor myself. I begin to see myself as being able and capable. That's what the Pharisees had done. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want to cut away all that and get back to what does God say you should do. And when we do that and when we look at it and see what it really means and what it really says and what God really expects from us, all we can do is fall on our knees and say there's no way. The weight, the holy heaviness of God's expectations either drive us to flee from him or it drives us to him. Now, what I want to do is I want to take one of the six examples that Jesus gives us in chapter 5. He walks through six different examples of how the Pharisees and the religious and righteous people of his day had used unrighteousness to change what God's Word had said and then see how Jesus sets that on his head and shows what true righteousness really is. I say, Jesus said, in authority to you, which means there has to be a response. And the example we're going to use comes from verse 33 of chapter 5. We could have picked, I could have picked any one or two of the six. I'm going to pick another one for next week to give you another case study. But I just decided to use the one from verses 33 through 38 about telling the truth, about how we speak and what we say. So I want to invite you to Think with me about how this particular paragraph is an example of both Jesus exposing the unrighteousness that creeps into even our attempts at being righteous 
and then drives us to a realization of humility before God as we see that we can never bear up under the weight of the holy heaviness of God's expectation. Okay? So let's use the example of oaths and telling the truth. Let me read for you again verses 33 to 38. I know it was part of a larger reading earlier this morning, but let me just read it for you again. Beginning at verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors. Let me just stop right there. Isn't it interesting? Jesus never says, It is written such and such and so, but I say to you. this, This contrast that he is building is not with what the Old Testament said versus what he said. The contrast is between the way it had been interpreted. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors. You have heard that this was taught. You see, Jesus is countering the interpretation of God's word. He had said back at verse 17, I did not come to break the law, to do away with the law, to cancel the law. I came to be its fulfillment. I am here for the word, and the word is here for me. So you see, he starts out by saying, right there in verse 33, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair, white or black, but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now, let's take a few minutes and analyze this case study, okay? In Jesus' day, oath-taking was a very, very important thing. Actually, it does go back into the Old Testament days. There are several places in um, Leviticus, in the book of Numbers, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. There are cases where God talks about making oaths. And the reason that God set out this was to confirm and affirm and hold people accountable for the things that they said. So if they took an oath and they said, God is my witness to this oath and he will be my judge if I don't keep it. Well, that's a pretty pretty heavy (laughs) sentence you're putting on yourself if you don't live up to what you say or don't do what you said you would do. So in the Old Testament, the idea was that you would take this oath in order to affirm that you knew that God was listening and that God was going to hold you accountable for what you did. But over the years, and by the time Jesus came along in the first century, what had happened was the religious leaders had found ways to say, now, okay, if you you make your oath to God himself, then you've got to make sure that you keep it. But if you swear by, oh, let's say, the gold in the temple, well, that's just something else. You don't, if you break that, that's nothing you can do. Or if you swear by the, 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 the city of Jerusalem, or if you swear by that mountain over there, or if you uh, make your oath, by, he, then, then your oath really doesn't mean anything, and God won't punish you because you didn't make your oath to him. That's why he says very specifically in the end of verse 33, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. And so what the Pharisees had done, and the teachers of the law had done, is they had taken something that was originally designed to hold us accountable for what we said, and they had created a way for you to actually get out of keeping the promises that you made. Ways to get around. Well, I didn't really swear by God. I just swore by the temple, or I just swore by this thing or that thing. And so that's okay, because... I can't do anything about the temple or I can't do anything about this or about that. 
Now, if that sounds a little foreign to you, it doesn't take long for us to think about the way we live in our world today. We live in a society that is built around covering yourself when you make a promise. You try your best to make sure that when you make a promise, you give yourself a loophole so that if you need to, you can get out of it. Oh, you know, you'll sign that contract, and in that contract, the person selling you the item or providing you with the service will say, we'll do this and this and this and this, and then down there, you know what we call it, don't you? Down there at the bottom of the page, the fine print. And fine doesn't mean good. Fine means tiny. Just teeny, tiny little letters. Oh, by the way, you know. Have you ever gone and bought one of those uh, pieces of furniture or that vehicle that you can get 274 months with no interest charged? I mean, no interest on your loan. Absolutely interest-free. Until you make the last payment one day late. And then guess what they do? You know. They back charge you 274 months worth of interest. You say, well, I'm sorry. You know, you were 17 minutes late on that payment. You're going to have to pay all that interest back to me now because you didn't pay your debt on time. Well, I didn't. I'm here on the No, no, it had to be by 12 noon. And it's 1217 now. You see, this is the kind of world we live in where rather than signing things to affirm the fact that we are honest and we'll keep our thing. What we do is so often in our society today, we find ourselves falling into a pattern where we try to make a promise and then see if we can't find a way to get ourselves out of it. And we'll talk about how that works in just a second. But that was going on in Jesus' day. And so Jesus said, here's what I would say to you. The better thing to do is just not to make an oath at all. Just Say what you're going to say. Basically, be honest. Be trustworthy. Now, I can hear some of you, you're already thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute now, though. If making oaths is wrong, if making oaths is not a good thing, why would God make oaths? Didn't God make oaths in the Old Testament? Didn't he swear by himself? Yeah, he did. Well, why would God not want us to do something that he did? Well, because he knew that people doubt It wasn't that God needed (laughs) to prove his truthfulness. It was so that God could let us know and give us a sense of assurance because our ancestors, our Old Testament ancestors, had been around pagans and pagan worship for so long and idol worship for so long and they had heard promises made that weren't kept and covenants made that that weren't honored that God said, in order to help you, I will swear by my own honor. We remember the story we talked about just a few months ago where God was the one that walked between the carcasses and by himself swore to Abraham that he would keep his promise to him. Not because God was not truthful, but so that Abraham would know that. So God used oaths, but the reason people ask us for oaths today is because we as humans are not usually truthful. We live in a society where we are built around looking for doubt or living with doubt, looking for people who are not going to honor what they say. I don't know about you, but I have to be honest with you and tell you that uh, especially my older boys and maybe the younger boys would tell you the same thing when I would say to the boys, now, on Saturday, if you get your chores done, on Saturday morning, I will take you to Six Flags. And one of the boys would say, you promise? I don't know about you, but that stings. It hurts. Because it usually means that my boys have heard me make promises to them before that I didn't keep. I had told them things before that I didn't do. I had said I would take care of things. Maybe I forgot. Maybe I got busy. Maybe things came up. But my boy said, Dad, do you promise? And the reason they asked for an oath, a promise, is because 
We humans can be unfaithful. We humans can be untrustworthy. So, let me lay a question out for you. Let me get practical for just a few minutes. I hope all this is practical, but let me get real practical about should we be involved in oath-taking today? I personally think that there is a time and a place where we should honor promises. If you, if you don't realize that when you, every time you sign a receipt, you're making a promise that you're going to pay that bill. And if you say, you know what, I'm not going to, then you need to get rid of all your credit cards, you need to get rid of your debit card, you need to do everything with cash. You can never run for political office because when you run for office, you have to swear an oath of allegiance. You can never be in the military because you have to take an oath when you go into the military. I think there are places, now some Christians will disagree, and I'm not saying that they're wrong and I'm right, but my opinion is I think there are times and places when it is good for us for a couple reasons. Number one, because they don't know us. I think in our private conversation within a church family, within our extended families, in our small communities, I think our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We should be men and women of integrity. No one should have to ever even ask us for something in writing. But sometimes the law requires it. Sometimes our service requires it. And in those cases, I think we should do that so that we can help them know the kind of people that we are willing to be. But now here's where things are going to get just a little bit, just walk with me a little bit, a little bit philosophical. You and I both know that even when people sign these contracts and make these promises, often they try to find ways to get out of them. We've already talked about that. So one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to get ourselves into that promise-making, oath-taking covenant-making relationship is so they can watch and see how faithful we are. Because you see, if you never ever do it, they never have a chance to see. But if you engage in business contracts, if you engage in financial contracts, if you engage in making covenants and taking oaths of office or etc., then as you live up to your word, people can see that because of who we serve, we are men and women of integrity. So I do believe there are times and places, but I think that whenever we can, as much as we can, and especially in our private communications, we should be people who don't need to even be asked to make a promise or take an oath or sign a document because people know that we are people of integrity. So why is it that it's so hard for us to tell the truth sometimes? Why is it that our children say, Daddy, do you promise? Why is it that sometimes our boss might say to us, now are you sure you're going to be able to do this? Well, I think sometimes it's because of cowardice, to be perfectly honest with you. I think it's cowardice. I think sometimes we so want to please people that we will promise things and say things because that's what they want to hear. Again, I got to tell you, I have been guilty of that. I have been guilty at times of saying, you know what, I will, I will do that. I will, I will do that. But I tend to want to hedge. I will do my best to do that. And you see what I just did? <laughs> I just created that little loophole. I will do my best to do that. Because I want people to like me. I'm a pastor. But I've got to tell you something. It is cowardice that won't tell people the absolute truth. Now, it should always be told with grace. Can you imagine going in to see your doctor? You've got a real bad headache. Doctor has an, does an MRI or a scan, and they find a problem there, and prognosis is not good, but you go back in to see the doctor for the follow-up visit. He says, you know, I just want to tell you, I know your head is hurting now, but in just a few weeks you won't be feeling that pain anymore. So have a good day. Is that a good doctor? Uh, no. The, you need the doctor to tell you exactly what's going on. We have walked this past week with the Stanleys. 
in Audrey's situation. And the doctors have had to be brutally honest with Melissa and Jason. And thanks to the Lord, as of the time I'm making this tape for you, Audrey is much, much better and we're continuing to pray for her. But you want your doctor to be honest with you. So sometimes we are cowards and we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Sometimes we're just plain careless. Again, i got to tell you, I'm guilty of this sometimes. We talk and say and are so glib in what we say that we often will make promises that we don't even realize we've made. And then circumstances come up. Things happen. We make these rash promises. And then something comes up. Something happens. And we can't keep them because we were careless. We didn't take the time to do what James said, be slow to speak. Probably the most famous story in the Old Testament is when Saul said, no one is going to eat, if anyone eats, they're going to be killed. And guess who did it? It was his own son, Jonathan. He made this rash promise. Unfortunately, <laughs> Jonathan's friends came into his defense and said, no one's going to die today. But here Saul had made this promise just in rashness instead of thinking through what he was going to say ahead of time. So sometimes it's cowardice, sometimes it's carelessness, but sometimes it's because we are just pure decalous. We will make promises that we know we're not going to keep. He said, well, Pastor, I would never do that. Are you telling me that you never, ever said to one of your kids just to get them off your back, okay, fine, fine, we'll do it. I'll do it. When you knew that you weren't going to do it. Because it's just a kid. They're just kids. You'd never do that to your boss. You'd probably never do that to your spouse. I hope you wouldn't do it. And I hope you wouldn't do it to your kids. But most of us at some time, they've been tugging at our pants leg or grabbing at our skirt and saying, look, I want you to do this one. And they say, okay, fine, fine. We'll do it. We'll do it tomorrow. We'll go tomorrow. We know good and well we're not going to. We volunteer to help in the nursery. We know good and well we're not going to do it. But that's just the nursery. Nobody sees what's going on back there in the back hallway. We wouldn't break a promise if we were chairing a committee, but, oh, it's just cleaning up the kitchen after the meal. We'll just say, oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. I forgot I was supposed to help clean up. Oh, I, I, it slipped my mind. We're sinners. And that's what we do. Cowardice, carelessness, callousness. And when we recognize what God expects of us, integrity and honesty and truthfulness, we recognize the fact that we're sinners and we can't live up to that. And so Jesus' model is exactly right. He exposes the unrighteousness in our righteous acts. And he shows us what God expects so that we are humbled. But now I want to go back and share with you one more reason why I believe that Jesus said, I say this to you. The to you was to expose and to exhort, but it's also to give us an example. Now let's just back up. We left our case study, and let's look down at verse 48 for just a second the very end of this chapter, Jesus makes an astounding statement. In verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect? <laughs> How can I be perfect? I, as God is perfect? God has absolutely no sin. How can I ever be perfect? Well, I've got some good news for you. And I want you to listen very carefully. I think we've misunderstood what Jesus meant by this. Not grossly misunderstood, but we've not understood the depth of it. This is not just a command, it's a promise. Actually, literally, it will say, you shall be perfect. And I, I think I can help you get your mind switched into the right channel when I say this. When Jesus saw a sick person and said, be healed, 
What did he mean by that? Did he mean now, I want you to go out there and heal yourself, okay? Get out of here. Go heal yourself. Be healed right now. No. When Jesus said, be healed, he says, I'm doing this for you. I'm saying to you, be healed. And Jesus imposed on that person the health and the, and the, and the healing that that person needed. Now listen. This is the best thing you hear today, I hope. When Jesus said, be perfect, he wasn't saying, now you get out of here and go work hard and you be perfect. He says, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, you will be perfect if you submit yourself to me. Now, okay, now he said, okay, now Steve, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. You explain what perfect means. Okay, perfect does not mean sinless. If you look back just a couple of verses, what is Jesus talking about? Beginning at verse 43, he's talking about God's love. About how we say, love your friends and hate your enemies. But God loves everyone. You notice he just said in uh, verse 45, he says, For he causes, meaning God, his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so he says, in the same way, your love needs to be perfected. Your love needs to be whole toward everyone. And this comes back to the reason why we have these six examples. These six references. These six case studies. If you notice, every one of them, are you listening? Every one of them has to do with the way you relate to other people. And so what Jesus is saying is, he says, I am saying on the authority that I have from my Father to you, which means there's an ethical response of allegiance to what I tell you, understand God wants you to have love for those around you. And what you say, and how you treat your spouses, and how you feel about hate toward people, lust for people, how you treat people when they do bad things to you. Every one of the six things that Jesus lines out has to do with the way in which we deal with other people. So Jesus exposes our unrighteousness. He exhorts us to come to him in humility, recognize the fact that we can never do it ourselves, and then take the example of God and allow him, by the power of his Holy Spirit living in us, to become more like God in our relationships with others. So rather than looking for ways to excuse ourselves, rather than looking for ways to find a loophole to our promises, rather than looking for ways to say one thing when we really mean another, he says, listen, love others enough to model your Father's love for them. And be honest. Be straightforward. Be a person of integrity. Live your life in a way that would bring God honor and glory. And if you do that, he will be glorified. You will be blessed, and his kingdom will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, I've tried this morning under your leadership to really do two things, to help us see this whole teaching, this whole Sermon on the Mount, as part of Jesus' attempt and effort to show us his authority and our response. We've looked at an example, Father, about how we deal with other people and what we say. And I pray today that in our lives and our hearts, we will think seriously. And we will allow you to expose the times that we have tried to act righteous on the surface, when really beneath the surface, we've not been righteous at all. That you will tear away the facade, the cover, and expose the unrighteousness of our hearts. I pray that you will allow your Holy Spirit to exhort us 
that rather than running and hiding, we might run to you and ask for forgiveness and recognize the fact that the weight, the holy weight of your expectations on us are things that we can never accomplish. And then hear Jesus' wonderful words. Be perfect. Not words commanding us to strive for perfection, but rather saying, I have imputed that onto you, that wholeness, just as I fulfilled law. Now you can fulfill as you yield yourself to Christ's likeness. So Father, help each of us to do that today. There's some of us that have heard very specifically, very specifically in this teaching about oaths and promises and covenants and our words, some things that we need to get fixed. We need to go to our children and ask for their forgiveness, to our spouses, to our bosses, to our friends, maybe to our church family. But for others of us, it may not be that. It may be something else, something bigger. But we recognize the fact that we've tried to be self-righteous rather than acknowledging that we are unrighteous so that we might be made righteous through the righteousness of your Son, our Savior. And help us to do that today. For it's in Jesus' name, the righteous one.